with us today, we have Professor Danny Kwa, who is uh, uh, Dean and Lee Kashing Professor of Economics at Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at NUS. Uh, Selena Ling, uh, Chief Economist of OCBC Bank. Vikram Khanna, Associate Editor of The Straits Times. And okay, so uh, Danny, let me um, perhaps start with you. How important is the deal politically for both countries? Now, before you answer that question, I'll say from the US point of view, the conventional thinking was a deal is very important. Yes. Because Trump has to keep the economy going. He needs a robust economy before the elections. However, there's also a school of thought emerging which says that a deal is not necessarily that important because, number one, uh, President Trump's base is unshakable. And number two, he can go to his base and say, look, I'm still fighting China in the trenches. I'm not getting a good deal, so I'm not going to do a deal. Yeah. And that goes down very well. Yeah. So tell me, what is your opinion? Okay. You know, your observation harks back to the time when Donald Trump announced uh, that you know, he was so popular among his people, among his base, that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and it wouldn't affect their support <laughs> at all. The, I am inclined to agree with you that it's actually not that important on either, on either side. On the American side, of course, it would be wonderful to have a win. Oh. Trump could say once again, he's the master of the deal. He has brought off this amazing deal with China. Now, there are, on China's side, there are some things that China would find quite palatable, easy to agree with, and therefore it would go along. China's political system, obviously, is very different from America's, but the two of them do uh, articulate a responsiveness to the population. Both systems do respond to what the people want. The people in China, in my reading, are quite taken aback by all of the rhetoric from the United States. They say, you accuse us of cheating. China says, we have worked hard. We have brought 627 million people out of poverty. We have increased our economy manifold. We were 50 years ago, a nation faced with mass starvation, mass fire famines on its knees. We're now standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with the most powerful economy in the world. We have created multi-billionaires, high-tech. We are leading the world in green technology, renewable energies, quantum computing. And you tell us that this is because we have cheated at the game of trade, because our government has provided us subsidies. We reject that view, would be the response from ordinary Chinese. So if Xi Jinping, ends up not coming up with a great deal with the United States out of this conflict, his people would probably be okay with that. The same way that Trump's base would probably be okay with that. This is not to say that both sides would, on economic terms, be better off from coming to a deal, coming to an accommodation that continues a multilateral system that allows greater trade. But politically, either side would be okay. Okay, I believe we may have Benjamin back online in Beijing. Benjamin, are you there? Can you hear me? I, I can hear you. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, uh, thanks Benjamin. Um, so what is the view in China of these uh, protracted trade talks which do not look like producing any real agreement anytime soon? Right. China is uh, hoping for a deal, right? But it's also prepared for the worst. Uh, we don't know whether the uh, phase one deal will come in December or whether it will come next year. But the uh, Hong Kong issue uh, is uh, looming over the trade talks, right? Uh, so it's, um, for China, 
you know, when the U.S. denies it is trying to contain China's rise, uh, Beijing is skeptical. Like, likewise, when China denies ambitions to supplant the U.S., Washington is dubious. So it's a uh, clash of uh, American and Chinese cultures and values, uh, which are poles apart. Uh, there's deep uh, misapprehension uh, and lack of trust. Right. Um, Selena, if I could bring you in. Um, is there any evidence emerging of the so-called decoupling of the two economies? Well, I was going to say that we live in a B&D world because there's so much talk about bifurcation of supply chains and uh, decoupling of trade. Actually, I'm mildly hopeful that we will get a phase one deal of the trade signed, okay? Because essentially to me, that those are low-lying fruits, right? What does China have to do? China just has to buy more agricultural goods from the U.S. Uh, what does the U.S. have to do? Not put on fresh tariffs or hike tariffs further. I think it's doable, okay? But beyond that, that's the real challenge, right? Because the, the world that we live in today, China has basically woken up and realized that U.S., which used to be the international arbiter of trading, uh, security, and all the other regimes, now is like a dance partner that threatens to stomp on your toes every time you turn in the wrong direction, right? And then U.S., there is very broad bipartisan, uh, you know, stance to be very tough on China. So I think phase two, phase three of the deal is very, very tough. When you get into all these ambiguous stuff like human rights violations, who is right, who is wrong, it's going to be really difficult to sort out. So in terms of where we stand, I think you know, at the end of the day, US and China are the two, among the two largest economies in the world. They account for 40% of GDP. Who are you going to side on? Right? US may be the largest now, but their economic importance is going to probably decline over time. China is up and rising. We are in China's backyard. You can't get away from that. So it's going to be very, very difficult choices. And I really, I don't see an easy way out from here. In fact, in the U.S., there's not that much coherence either on the China policy, to be frank. I mean, a lot of people talk about decoupling. But on the, on the other hand, about three or four weeks ago, I think it was Larry Kudlow who said, no, no, this is not about decoupling. Mm. This is about, uh, you know, uh, reciprocity. Mm. Reciprocity is another big buzzword, right? So we have that uh, confusion to deal with. Uh, Vikram, could you come in on that? Um, yes, on decoupling, on the, just the economic dimension of it. I think in terms of normal trade, it's very difficult for that to happen because American companies are very embedded in supply chains in which Chinese companies are also very active. And it is very difficult to disentangle that, even if the investment moves from China to a third country, but those American companies are still involved. But in some other areas, there is limited decoupling. For example, CFIUS, the action, the uh -huh. uh, Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, is very strict in screening Chinese investments, and these are com coming under much greater scrutiny. Then researchers and students and so on are being slapped with, with restrictions. Uh, then there's this entity list that the U.S. has created right. of uh, Chinese companies that are barred from doing business with American companies, although there are, there, there are several exceptions being made. But I think the biggest area in which there is decoupling, and this is actually not really related to the trade war as such, is on the internet and on technology governance. The China's internet is a world of its own, right? I mean, we do not have an open internet anymore. Um, and China's technology governance 
um, on the data ownership, for example. I mean, the state is basically, at the end, the state owns the data. In the US, it's the companies that own the data with loose regulation. Europe has a totally different system again, where there's much more emphasis on the individual owning the data. So I think there is a sort of, de I wouldn't say just decoupling, it's a fragmentation in this area. And I think uh, Ian Bremer of the Eurasia Group has an interesting piece in today's Straits Times where he talks about the need for a world data organization, oh. kind of like the WTO, but for data, to set the rules on you know, how, how data should be managed and so on. There's no global standard at the moment. We are, we are all we are witnessing different standards in different places. So uh, in that sense, there is not just decoupling, but fragmentation. Yeah. Okay, Benjamin, what's your opinion on that issue of decoupling and fragmentation? All right. Uh, well, President Trump has declared on numerous occasions his intent to decouple the world's two biggest economies commercially and technologically. But uh, Vice President Pence recently said decoupling from China is not America's strategic goal. That leaves China scratching its head. Is it because um, uh, Trump, of course, is the president and uh, Pence is the vice president? So is it um, a flip-flop or is it uh, the two do not meet eye to eye or is it one playing the good cop, the other playing the bad cop? So it's hard for China to understand this flip-flop, right? But decoupling is not um, in anybody's interest because the two countries have to work together on a lot of issues, a lot of other issues, including nuclear proliferation, climate change, terrorism, money laundering, global pandemics, and any other threats to global stability. So it'll be difficult. I, I don't see the two uh, giants, the, two, the world's two biggest economies uh, decoupling, and then uh, it'll be back to the Cold War where a block will orbit around one country and another block will orbit around another country. I don't think it's um, feasible. Excellent point. Thanks for bringing those up because I know that, uh, for example, fentanyl, the fentanyl supply from China, which has been fueling opioid uh, overdoses in the United States, is really a huge issue. And China and the U.S. have to work together on that. So, um, Danny, um, let me get to you. How important is it for Southeast Asia not to be forced to choose hmm. between U.S. and China? We hear this all the time. We should yeah. not be put in a position where we need to choose. And in the U.S., they say, a lot of people in the States say, look, this is a false choice. I mean, there is no choice. There is no moral equivalency. Yeah. China will infiltrate, co-opt, and dominate while we offer rule of law and so forth. Yeah. So what is the, what is the real deal? Yeah. Uh, the, okay, so, so here, I think the principles that we want to apply include how for all nations, not just for US and China, for all nations, they should seek to advance their self-interest. They should look after their own people. That has to be the abiding principle for how Southeast Asia approaches this matter. Now, Southeast Asia is often confronted, exactly as you say, by diplomats, interlocutors who come around and give that dichotomy. With us, you get international rule of law. With the others, you get the arbitrary exercise of power. And that leads to a conversation where you know, we begin to think about who our economic partners are, who our security partners are, who is politically allied with us, and it leads to that kind of a calculation. I suspect that's the wrong calculation, and that's why you're suggesting it's a false dichotomy. The, 
the reason that we continue to think it's a, it's a dichotomy, if at all, is that Southeast Asia, Singapore, we thrive on the global trading system. We thrive on multilateralism. Each individual member state in ASEAN and Southeast Asia is small relative to, to the world. So we need a system that's a level playing field. Now, the question that we really need to ask is, is it possible to imagine a level playing field where we don't make that choice uh -huh. between the US and China? Our muscle memory says that that's not possible because for the last 70 years in the course of this thing called the American century, it has been America that has advocated, proposed, strengthened multilateralism. And we worry that if we go with others, we will not have that. We have to look at what different nations are saying here. The, 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 the rhetoric, the narrative on multilateralism is no longer the monopolistic preserve of the United States. In fact, the United States has pulled back a lot from the multilateral architecture, that's the World Trade Organization. It's pulled back a lot from agreement on multilateral deals. Uh, it's pulled back from the idea that it will be able to lead the multilateral system. I think our interests, our interests in Southeast Asia have to continue to focus on the multilateralism that serves for us, open trading systems on a level playing field. That is what we need to be looking at. All the rest of that is commentary that sometimes distracts. Mm -hmm. So to wrap up, let's, we have a few minutes more. Vikram, you had, we've been talking about this decoupling issue and the, the consensus seems to be that it's essentially a little too late and also there's an issue of dual-use technology, which America complains that China has you know, acquired either through stealing, which China of course denies, or through, in some cases, acquisition of American companies which are about to go bankrupt and then they acquire the technology. So is what President Trump is doing, is it too late? I would say it is too late to stop China's technological advance. Okay, I think if the U.S. is, for example, trying to stop China importing chips, China is going to make them on its own. And which Huawei, Huawei is doing, it's also designing its own, own operating system. Right? Um, it's also too late to reverse China's technological leadership in certain industries. Uh, for example, in AI, in uh, electric vehicles, in fintech, in IoT. I think it is way more advanced than many Western countries, including the United States and some of these industries, right? So I don't, I don't think it's possible to reverse that. Um, also, in an integrated world, I don't think, I don't think the U.S. alone, single-handedly, can sort of blockade the technological advance of China, because China has te technology alliances with other people, other countries. It has, for example, with the EU. Right. I mean, it has... A, it, in, in the field of alternative energy, for example, there are a lot of EU companies very active in China. The U.S. can't stop that. So it's not, not that one, one country can't, can't do this. However, what is not too late is, is to get China to make certain reforms in areas like such as intellectual property protection, right? Uh, opening up more areas of its economy, um, stopping forced technology transfers, which is, it has already pledged to do. But I mean, I suppose the, you know, the pressure of the trade war may, be, may accelerate some of these reforms. So that is not too late. But I think on the, on the larger scale, on the larger theme of stopping to China's, China's technological advance, I think it is too late. 
like to add something? Yeah, uh, if I may. The, there's some things that, that Trump's doing now that actually works right in China's favor. Mm -hmm. and for that, it's not too late. It will actually happen. The main complaints on economic grounds are whether China, China's state subsidizes its industries too much, whether state-owned enterprises are too large a presence, forced technology transfer, disrespect for intellectual property. It's on all of these fronts, as far as I can tell, China is quite willing to go along. It's already fighting an internal battle on reducing SOE presence within the state. It will soon be the world's leading technological frontier in quantum computing, in high-speed computers, in green energies. And at that point, you become someone who wants to protect intellectual property. So getting China to protect intellectual property is a no-brainer because that's where China is already headed. Uh, also on this trade front, Trump is not too late, but it works in China's favor. Where he is, I think, wrong-headed, not so much too late, is the things that he's trying to do work against big companies. Big companies are driven by greed, or that's a, a, the wrong way of saying. <laughs> They're driven by trying to maximize profits. That's how we say it in economics. <laughs> so, and, and what, to the extent that Trump is trying to remove the discipline of the marketplace and replace that with the heavy machinery of state control, that works against big business. Big business wants fast growing large markets. It looks to China, it wants to do business with China. And my third point is it will be painful for China if America removes the supply of Google Apps on the Play Store, removes the supply of Android, removes the supply of Windows operating system. All of that will be painful for China. Forbids semiconductor companies in the US from selling their smart chips to China. But this has happened before and China has benefited each time. In 2010, China unveiled the world's fastest supercomputer. 2015, the Obama administration forbade Intel from selling its best microprocessors to China. 2018, China unveiled its other fastest supercomputer, all propelled by only Chinese technology. So what Obama tried to do back then in restricting trade actually propelled China's technological development. Today, China has 206 of the 500 world's fastest supercomputers, America only 120. So all of these things are actually working in favor of China. There will be short-term pain, but it's not just that it's too late, it's completely wrong-headed. Selena, yeah, um, could, I, on that. Yeah, could you bring you into this? I think the risk you know, is like the approach that US is taking is quite heavy-handed. It's basically carrying a big stick. Uh, the stick is only going to work so far. You look at what has happened with trade, basically now there are tariffs on almost all of you know, US imports from China, right? So then it's a question of just ratcheting up the pain. You know, the first hit is painful, but after that, subsequently, you become a little bit immune. So I guess at what point China will say, okay, you know, I'm going to back off, withdraw from trading and investments in the US and basically close its doors. I think that would be a very bad outcome. But I think um, Vikram's point about how China basically will cement its lead in advanced manufacturing and tech, that's going to take place no matter what. I think what he has learned from this trade war is that it needs to build its own defences. And the only way you can do it is to be self-sufficient, to be so far in the lead that even the US has no chance of fighting back. I think that's what's happening. I, 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 I don't think Singapore is in a position where it has to choose. 
I mean, I don't think either country has said my way or the highway. Um, I think taking off from what uh, DPM said about building connectivity throughout the region, I think from Singapore's point of view, what would be good is for the U.S. to also become more engaged in Asia. For example, for the U.S. to join the AIIB. For example, for the U.S. and European companies to work on the BRI, uh -huh. to join the BRI, to multilateralize the BRI. Make it, it should not be a China-dominated thing. It should have other players and it should have other governance standards. I think from Singapore's point of view, uh, a greater multilateralization of activity in Asia would be good. So um, that's, uh, that's I, I think, what would suit Singapore the best, and uh, not having to choose. And I don't think we do have to choose. Right, right. So thank you very much. I'll be, I'll be going back myself to DC in a couple of days, and I'm bracing myself. Uh, because uh, we have the impeachment hearings as well, so all the a lot of oxygen is being sucked out of the room in D.C. Uh, on account of the televised impeachment hearings, uh, and uh, we have to see what happens. Uh, Thanksgiving holiday is coming. We expect more developments after Thanksgiving and potentially before Christmas, so it's going to be a busy winter. And meanwhile, of course, this, the U.S.-China strategic competition is sort of humming away in the background. And... Um, I have to say that there is not that much optimism. Uh, a trade is only a part of it, as we know, as we have been writing in the Straits Times. And a phase one trade deal will just be you know, enough to keep the markets happy, keep the economy uh, supported, keep global confidence up, and, and give President Trump a boost. But on the other hand, as I said previously, there's also an emerging school of thought. Uh, which holds that it's not really necessary for President Trump to get a deal because he can always go to his base and say, I'm fighting China for a good deal, and they're not giving me one, and that'll go down very well.